It's good. I feel at home here now. I don't get an introduction today, so it must mean some of you know who I am already. Uh, it's exciting to see all the vehicles in the parking lot and hear more babies crying. That's just the good thing. So it's good to be here. Uh, this is Matt's getting busier with things going on, teaching school again. I was given the option of either I pick up more hours on the farm or maybe start preaching once a month. So being the age I am, you can see which way I rather went. <laughs> if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 16. <clears throat> Continuing in on your series, we'll start at verse 21. Then we'll finish up until the end. If time gets a little tight, if you're wondering why also in the last verse gets omitted, it's not because I didn't want to touch it, it's because I'll let him deal with that next week. <coughs> it's Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. Yes, will you please stand for the reading of the word. Got to always learn the customs. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they, they, um, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Would you bow for prayer? Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we could gather here this morning. Thank you for uh, the gracious invite to being able to exposit your word and just the opportunity we have to do that, to preach it, to listen to it. Would you speak to us today knowing that there is a cost to following you? You have not promised an uh, easy and safe life, but you have promised to be with us, to be faithful. And we pray that you would be with your people. So we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so last Sunday you had a baptism Sunday. But if you can go back a Sunday before that, remembering the sermon that Matt preached, it was very optimistic and uplifting, knowing that the church will prevail, that we should be encouraged, that we are assured victory for the church. And it was kind of good. You can kind of leave with that rah-rah feeling of a bit of adrenaline going to go about your work. I know the illustration was used, being told ahead of time that there is promised victory. But as often there is, there's kind of two sides. Then you can veer into the other side. The ditch on the other side of the road is, well, what if you're assured victory? Well, then the other thing that can happen is complacency. All of a sudden you're told, well, you will be victorious. So then if people aren't paying attention, then all of a sudden the mindset slips in. Well, why bother? We're going to win anyway. What difference does it make what I'm going to do? So I like how these two passages actually back-to-back -back very quickly 
He goes from promising the church will prevail, and he comes right back to tell them, but it's not going to be an easy ride. This will come at a cost. I did not promise you safety, and I did not promise you all happiness. Some of you who are my age, maybe a touch older, will remember the New York Islanders dynasty back in the early 80s. Four straight cups, till the final one they won in 83 was against an upstart Oiler team. Bunch of young Edmonton Oilers. Wayne Gretzky later recalled after they lost that cup final to them. He said he didn't want to walk by their dressing room when he was all packed up and leaving because he didn't want to see, expected it to be very loud and a bunch of celebrating going on in there. Yet what surprised them as he walked by and peeked into their room, it was awfully silent. He saw a bunch of old guys who looked like they had just been through war. Some of you who follow hockey will know Mike Bossy and his bad back lying on the floor, could hardly move. And old Brian Trottier, ice packs all over his knees. It was at that time it all of a sudden hit him. That victory would not come easy. There was a cost to winning. And I'm a little afraid what the early Oilers won before they knew what that cost was. They want victory to come easy. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of the church wants today. They do like the Jesus. They do like all the benefits that come with it. They just don't like the sacrifice that it involves. And as you follow these things, as consistency usually does, I think a lot of the reason the cross has been silenced in churches, because this is essentially what a biblical cross means. Well, they like the cross. They like to wear it around their neck. They like to talk about it. But the cross that has been silenced is a bloody cross, one that's filled with guilt, shame, payment. Rather, they prefer a cross that maybe is just moral example, just kind of symbolizes how much Christ loved us. But you open up the Bible anywhere, and it bleeds. There's that scarlet, uh, that scarlet thread running right through it that the cross cannot be ignored. A.W. Tozer said, Everyone has to do something about the cross. You're either going to run from it or you're going to die on it. The cost of the cross is high, but the cost of a crossless Christianity is much higher. And there's a lot to get to putting these two sections together. And I'll know how your Bible breaks it up as these headings are added later. They're not part of the original. So I actually like it covering them both because how well they work together. And I will break them up that way this morning from verse 21 to 23. You have Christ first speaking that the cross was unavoidable for him. And then he'll follow it up with saying, but the cross is unavoidable for us too. But like the good leader he is, he starts with saying, you will have to bear the cross. But before he does that, he first makes it clear that I will bear it myself. And I will bear a much heavier cross than you will ever have to. So in these first three verses, we have this exchange between Jesus and Peter. And he begins off saying, verse 21, from this time, indicating earlier, a lot of what you read in Matthew till now was either teaching and then it was kind of the glorious stuff, the healing, the teaching that they liked. They all liked the signs and the wonders, people being healed. But now, from this time, there's going to be a bit of a switch now. Now Christ is going to begin to speak to them of the suffering 
That is going to have to be part of the gospel and the kingdom coming. And Peter, being the emotional guy he is, a few words in, and he already completely loses it. See, if Peter would have listened a little more, as Jesus said, that he was going to have to be killed, and right after that, he says, and on the third day, be raised at the end of verse 21. But Peter doesn't even hear these last few words, right? Kind of like that ADHD son you have, that you give two words of instruction and you know you've lost them. All Jesus says is that he's going to have to be killed. And already, Peter loses it. He can't handle this. And for Peter, it would have been hard, like any faithful Jew. They were expecting the kingdom to come. They saw Jesus still at this point. I think they still had this thing in their head that Jesus was going to bring the kingdom about, overthrowing the Romans. I think a lot of the excitement still came from the Roman kingdom being overthrown by might and power. So then Christ rebukes him in verse 22. And you can imagine that. I just think, putting myself in Peter's shoes. Imagine, imagine the Son of God who Peter had just earlier confessed, you are the Christ. And right now, he's going to be rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus says, not just rebuke, but how harsh is this rebuke? As he says, get behind me, Satan. These words are sharp, a lot sharper, because Jesus had previously had to rebuke Peter. It's not that Peter hasn't needed this in the past. But now this is as sharp as it gets. To be actually told, Jesus, look at you and say, get behind me, Satan. And we can see a little bit of a parallel here, actually between Jesus and the wilderness temptation. The parallel is why he uses this language. Jesus says, calls out, get behind me, Satan. What is this but a temptation to Christ to avoid the cross? That's what Jesus sees in Peter's advice, just like in the wilderness temptation, the greatest temptation of that all to Christ would have been. This was a way out of the cross if he would have taken it. And you wonder, why was Jesus so harsh with him? Why did he have to use such harsh language? I don't think we realize the seriousness. Peter's words were essentially denying the necessity of the cross. Essentially denying penal substitution, which... I'm assuming most of you already know penal substitution. There needed to be actual payment for sin. Actually, someone was going to have to bear that punishment. But in Peter's response, he was actually saying, you don't have to do it, Jesus. Why don't you just leave it? You don't have to be killed. There can be another way. In Peter's words, there's that hint of saying, sin doesn't need payment. Why don't we just kind of, can't God just forgive it? Why do we need the blood? Why do we need death? Maybe if you could just avoid the cross, there's got to be another way. And I think the hardest thing for Jesus here, if we add some application to our own lives, is that it had to come from your closest friend. And some of us, I think, have experienced that. Some of the things that keep us up most at night is not some atheist or some pagan attacking our Christianity. What happens when it's your closest friends or family Wondering why you believe what you do. Why you go to the church that you do. To quote Matthew Henry in his commentary here. It's a little long quote. 
And I think some of it might touch a nerve with some people here because of how true it is. And he says, Those that engage in any great work must expect to be met with hindrance and opposition from friends and foes, from within and from without. Those that obstruct our progress in any duty must be looked upon as an offense to us. Those that hinder us from doing good or suffering for God when we are called to do it, whatever they are in other things, they are Satan's to us. They are our adversaries. And we see the seriousness to those who want to hinder us from being obedient to the gospel. See, the greatest sin here was trying to divert Christ from the Father's will, trying to take the easy way out. And the hardest thing for Christ was that it had to come from a friend. And the problem is explained, Peter's problem, at the end of verse 23, where Jesus says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, it's so easy for our minds to go looking around, even good intentions, how we're going to solve things and very quickly instead of thinking upward, thinking the Father's will, we look around and we see problems and how we're going to solve this. And that's how our gaze is going to go. We see everything going on. But I don't want it to get lost as we try to have this dichotomy as either you're looking worldly or looking heavenly. So we try to think, well, it's an either or. You shouldn't be looking here. You need to keep your focus upward. I think we want to have a bit of a shift and watch that language because very quickly we think just heavenly focused is good. Let's not look at what's going on in the world because that's our overreaction to people who just look at what's going on in the world and we want them, no, you got to get your eyes up. Well, you do, but we just want to get the order right. We don't want to look at the world and filter it and filter our view of God and what God should be doing through what's going on in the world. Rather, We want to look upward. We want to filter through our view of God and who He is. But then we want to look at the world and bring that view to what's going on in the world around us. See, that will keep us from getting frustrated, as Peter clearly was here. Because there's a very fine line, and we get confused, especially with good intentions, of what the Father's will is with what our will is. Or what we think his will is so we very finally blur the lines what the father's will is what a biblical will is for what we think a biblical will is so we actually think we're doing the work of God as Peter thought he was and that's why we get frustrated and if we don't watch ourselves we get frustrated with God then when things aren't working as they should because we know what would be good for the kingdom So we're so driven that we know what's best for God. So then we get frustrated when things aren't working. Well, it's not what I want. I'm not selfish, but like it's because I want this for God. So we put our feelings onto what we think God should be doing. So we can get frustrated because we think, okay, we're in an area of weak churches, if I may say, in some areas. Well, we got a biblical church. Why aren't we growing faster? Like, God, don't you know if you would bring in more people here, we could do so much more. So why isn't this happening? And we get frustrated that he isn't, this is where we don't know. It should all be going good for us. We want to start up a school. So it's so needed. We're going to do this for you, God. 
bring in the funds, because this is so needed. Bring us the people. All of a sudden, when it doesn't happen as we want, all of a sudden, the budget isn't working out. Now, okay, this is your will, God. Why aren't you carrying through with it? No, this is our will, good intentions as Peter. Peter's intentions on a surface level were good, right? What's wrong with him not wanting Jesus to be killed? But Peter cannot handle that there might be a greater will going on, and it might involve a lot more suffering. So we exchange the supremacy of Christ for our supremacy of what should be going on. And I thought of this for myself, and I thought if anyone could ever come up with an example, I'd like to hear it. Have you ever had a case where you have exchanged, where you've been frustrated with what God's been doing, what you think His will should be, which what you can't see why your will wouldn't be better, where your will involved more suffering? It's kind of funny how that works, that anywhere I've thought God should be, I think He should be doing this, and I realize every time me and God have a discrepancy, somehow... My plan always involves a bit of an easier path, what God should be doing. I've never had it yet where God's plan, me and God disagreed, and God's plan actually would have been easier for me, where I actually thought my route would have involved more suffering, but I think it would have been better. Another one of our issues is patience. Boy, if you're like me, we struggle with patience. So we try to solve that by saying this is all for God's will. But we just don't like waiting. We want God to build our church, bring in the people, build our school. Let's have this up by next year because of all the good it can do. One of the things that helped me have a lot more optimistic view of where the kingdom's going is starting to step outside of myself. Because I want things to happen fast. Also when I was able to actually accept the work I do, the work the church I'm doing, or the church is doing, maybe I won't even get to see it in my lifetime. Have we ever thought about that? Maybe the work you guys are doing here, and I pray for you guys, you find a building, and almost assuredly in the years to come, you will. What if you're still meeting here in 30 years? What if it takes your children's generation and all some things take off. I know the elders just panicked that I would even dare say that. But if you can be all right with that and say, maybe all the work we do, maybe the plants of a school, maybe we won't get to see full fruition, but we're going to lay the groundwork. Maybe that's the long-term goal here, is generations to come. <clears throat> see, we often think back to the previous sermon of slamming those gates with a battering ram. We like the modern battering ram. The cops come in, wind up, boom, the door blasts open. If you watch a little more medieval times in the battering ram, they work there night, day, day after night, pound, pound, till stone slowly fell, fell some more, slowly cracks. Man, they would pound that battering ram over and over and over. I think that's a clear picture of how we want to treat the kingdom and our work that we're doing. Because if we go back again and look at Jesus, the climax of the gospel came on the greatest sacrifice. The inauguration of the kingdom 
came on the back of the greatest suffering. God crushed his own son so he could accomplish a long-term plan. So why would we think it's any different for us? The kingdom has always expanded through suffering. The modern appeal to Christianity is its therapeutic ability. Come in. We'll bring you into church. We'll help your life. We'll clean you up. We'll make it easier for you. We're going to return that joy to your life. Now Jesus will come in and say the exact opposite in our second section of this morning's sermon. Jesus is going to say, Come, but I didn't avoid the cross, and unfortunately you can't either. But remember, I endured a physical, agonizing cross. The cross that's unavoidable for you is the figurative one. And in verse 24, he's very blunt with them. And he says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I love his honesty here. This is what love looks like. I think it would have been a cruel thing for Jesus to sugarcoat things here. Why don't you just keep following me? Things will be good. We're just going to love each other. We're going to maybe have some potlucks. And maybe all of a sudden, after he's dead and gone, then he'll quickly slip it in there. Oh, yeah, there's also guilt and payment and blood. Like, that's the part. There's an appeal. If we do evangelism this way, if we sell an appeal to them, we'll bring him in. Maybe once they're in the church for a year and they like our food and they like our fellowship, then we can reveal the gospel when they're ready to handle it. Actually, sadly, just heard of a big evangelistic conference down the Southern Baptist where they had seven words you should never use when evangelizing people. And one of the words was repentance because telling people to repent is offensive to them. And the Gospel of Mark, I saw, funny, the first words that are Jesus' words were repent. But that's a sign when we want to win them over. Win them over with an appeal. But Jesus himself was proof this didn't work. The ones who came for the appeal very quickly left. You will never win people over with enough appeal to things they like and benefits. If they can't handle the gospel, they're never going to stay. This is why if we, instead of going into a breakdown of the language here, reading verse 24, if anyone would take, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. But essentially that language is, if anyone be willing, and more clearly, if anyone desire to come after me. See, to endure, endure a life of sacrifice, there needs to be desire there. No one is going to follow Christ faithfully if it's based on requirement. If come, and this is the church's requirement, this is Christ's requirement to follow me, it's never going to last. Jesus' call to come after him wasn't a call to an easier life. The desire must be for Christ, for Christ alone, not for what he has to offer. See, self-denial here that Jesus calls for as it's so easy to think, well, this is a denial to deny ourselves from all things worldly. So self-denial is about don't buy anything with your money. No, we should never go on trips. We should never, like it's, don't do any holidays. Don't buy a snowmobile. That's self-denial. 
Jesus was never about the materialistic. He was always at the heart. Self-denial isn't about things, giving up things in kind of a monastic way. Self-denial is about switching your focus. Your focus is no longer about here and even among those around you. Now you have a kingdom focus. Self-denial is putting your focus on something else. It's switching into having a bigger cause than yourself. Because if it's strictly a requirement when you come, the least bit of pressure and you're going to cave in. This is what the parable of the sower talks about when it said the seed that fell and some received it with joy and the first sign of persecution, tribulation, they couldn't handle it and walked away. And thankfully we're far enough removed from it. But what do we see during COVID pressure? Little bit of pressure. Oh, church doors closed. Any little bit of pressure that comes up to us doing the smallest bit of actually having to give something up, and we can't do it. And I'm surprised for the people that said, well, it's Canada. We don't have persecution. Like, how should we ever talk like that? I think people actually indict themselves a little more than that. Or it actually makes things worse. Because if the church is going to say, well, Canada, we don't know anything about persecution here, okay? That's actually worse. If we don't know anything about persecution, then why are we caving? Like, so you're caving to things that aren't even harsh yet? That actually makes it look worse when people can't stand up for the smallest cause. And we like to think, our area here, southeast Manitoba, the Bible Belt, you may be thinking, well, you hear this and you say, it's never really cost me anything. One, maybe not. And I'd say, well, you better get prepared because you better be prepared. What if it does in the future? And the second thing, a little bit of conviction maybe. If you say it's never cost you anything to follow the gospel, maybe ask yourself if that's a problem. Is that maybe a bad sign if you can say, I have never had to have any difficulty because I'm a follower of Christ. I'm not saying we want to look for it, but I think naturally it'll come to us. So you may be saddened, a little bit discouraged. Well, it's a little bit discouraging then. Life's going to get hard. Well, it could, but we also don't want to look at it that way. I'm not trying to put the dark cloud over it because even Jesus wasn't doing that. See, the irony he's going to bring here in verse 25 is when he says, in verse 25. Oh, that's why. Flip my page. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Realize there the language. He doesn't say keep it. Why doesn't he say whoever you'll keep your life? It's because you don't have life. Apart from Christ, Apart from giving yourself over to the gospel, you don't have life to begin with. So in Him, you will find life. Denying yourself and following Him, giving yourself over to the gospel, is actually when you find life. This is the problem with so many want their best life now. They say, well, I, want to, I only have one life to live. 
I want it to be a good one. I want happiness. Verse 26 says, answers, what's that worth though for you? Where he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What does it look like to lose your life as verse 25 calls for? It actually means to receive life. There is no life apart from Christ. But we don't want to think of the extreme and think, well, this means giving up my life. So this is a call to bearing the cross. So we go right to the side of martyrdom. And all we can think of really the big picture, okay, I'm going to prepare myself. If things get bad enough, I want to become strong enough in my walk with Christ that I'll be able to give up my life. And could be an element. Maybe one day we'll face that. Some Christians do. But we don't want that to be our focus here. In a sense, that's the easy part. I don't mean easy as in martyrdom. I never want to belittle those who have had to go through it and say it's easy. But I would kind of say, if I had to venture a guess and someone came in here and said, give up, deny Christ, or give up your life, I think most here probably would be a pretty easy choice. Right? That wouldn't be that hard. Easy decision. But, I was sometimes talking with young men. In the passage in Ephesians, it's kind of the same idea where it says, as Christ gave up his life for the church, give up your life for your wife. So, without think, just things surface level, and they think, yep, I would die for my wife. That's what I'm called to do. If it ever comes to that, I would take a bullet for my wife. Good. I think almost every secular husband would do that. There's not much difference between a husband in the church or a husband outside the church. When it outright came, her life or mine, any normal man, respectable man, would make that choice. So yeah, you do that. Good for a husband who would do that. But I think what the principle is, so you'd give up your life for her when a gun was there. But, would you give up your life for her when the boys are playing cards on Friday night? Would you give up your life for your wife when someone jets tickets, but she's had a hard day, a couple kids at home, diapers need changing? That is what that passage talks about, giving up your life. Are you in that much service that you're, you're giving up yourself is to someone else's benefit? Same thing here. That is the call, to give up your life and carry your cross for Christ. If it ever comes to that martyrdom, giving up your life, yes, could be part of it. But let's not overlook the small for the big. When you give up your life for Christ, that calls here and now Super Bowl Sunday. Guys are all watching. And as we know, basically pretty safe prediction, a halftime show that brings no glory for God. Are you going to take up your cross, find something else to do, leave the room? That actually becomes, in that context, the little things, that becomes much harder than the decision physically giving up your life for Christ. Do you give up your life for Him when there's pressure in the small things? When there's pressure, can I fudge my taxes a little bit? Right? Those things become a lot harder when you ask to carry your cross. 
It's in that daily, willing, sacrificial love that we do so out of adoring Christ and what he did for us. As Bonhoeffer said in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. The good news is because you died in him, or because you are in him, when he died, you died. But when he's resurrected, you are resurrected in him. We have union with him. And we don't want that doctrine of union with Christ overlooked. We now want to live in the same way that he would call us to live. See again, the comparison to marriage. This isn't suffering sacrifice. Now any of us who are in a joyful, healthy relation, or marriage, we would all look at others and just wish for them they could catch on to the joy they're missing out. Often I just think, what a great thing it is to be in a biblical marriage. To give up of yourself all these things that they'd wonder, what, you're staying home to be with her? Oh, you're not coming out with the guys? Huh. That can compare to being able to serve my wife in the way that I'm called to do. Walking in a biblical marriage, that's not effort. That is just sheer joy to be able to adore in such a way. But verse 27 has a dark reality. Realize this part, Jesus says in verse 26. What does it cost if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he's done. There is the reality of those who do not want to bear the burden of the cross. It's often said that the gospel is an invitation, which it is, Jesus says, come. But it's not an invitation in the way that I was invited to stay for potluck. If I say no, that's not a big deal. I hope no one's going to hate me for it. But there is no, isn't an option here as if it's a take, or, take it or leave it. You can say no, but there are consequences for those who reject this gospel. And one of the ones I fear for most are believers who are within the church thinking there won't be consequences but who do not know that they are not saved by a blood-bought gospel. Nominal Christianity that is just in the church, surface level, and totally blind to the fact that they are not under, saved by a bloody cross, one that has paid their guilt and their sin, taken their shame, but now has a call for them to live under authority of the one who paid the cost. Those who thought they could save their life. Those who cho choose self, who don't want to give of themselves, who don't want to bear the sacrifice, are in for an awful awakening. And this is why our duty as a church and as individuals is to go out and bring a biblical gospel. This should drive us to evangelism, especially making those aware who don't know how badly they need it. But I don't want to conclude on this dark side of this verse, because what we often do, we read a judgment passage like this, and we read, 
Christ is going to come and repay. And we think, this is all wrath and judgment. When Christ comes and He's going to repay everyone for what they've done, oh yeah, He's coming with punishment. Repayment in and of itself is not a bad thing. Just think, anyone works for a living, aren't you glad there's repayment? A lot of the things you do. Repayment is a neutral term. So we don't want to be neutral Christians then who think, phew, I'm under the cross. I'm not going to have to face judgment of Christ. I'm not going to have to be repaid for my sin. No, we can actually go forth. This is going to sound a little, I don't want to use the word arrogant, but it may sound funny to how we're used to hearing this. I'm glad Christ is coming to judge. Not just the wicked. I'm glad he's coming to judge us. That he will repay. Like If you think of what you're trying to do, the effort we're putting into kingdom building, think if we take a verse like this and have no optimism to it, this becomes very pointless to what we're trying to do. Like if all Christ is coming when God will repay each one according to what they've done and all we add is the negative context that that means all the bad you've done you're going to be repaid from. So then we, under the gospel, we one-up it and we think now we've done good. We say, I am, the cross has paid that. Christ paid my sin. We're going to preach the gospel and we're going to give people assurance that they don't have to fear judgment. And that is great. If that's step one, right? To be totally free is a great thing. But as the gospel does, and I just keep realizing just how awesome God is, that I don't think, I wonder how many steps I'm missing yet to the goodness, to the excitement of what he did for us, the kingdom coming, and the consequences that brings. I think I, think I keep missing steps because I keep finding new ones. So we have judgments coming, repayments coming, so, wicked will be judged, which I think it's all right to say good. We want the wicked. We want that to be paid for. Next, sin. Our sin is paid for. Good. I'm excited. I have nothing to fear because I am in Christ. When God comes to judge me, He's going to see nothing of my sin because I'm covered. Not because of anything I've done, because I'm covered in that cloak of righteousness Luther talks about. He looks at me and sees Christ. Good. No sin. Nothing I got to pay for. But even that's still almost a neutral ground. Now, I'm excited to go to work here. I'm excited for all our efforts because there's going to be repayment yet. And we're so scared of talking about meritorious work as if, well, it's not about not about wanting rewards. No, no, you should never do anything for rewards. Yeah, it's not, don't do it for yourself. Well, you're not doing it for yourself, but I think the Bible allows us to think there are rewards and there is repayment. So, if I leave a bit of optimism here, I say everything you're doing as a church, everything you're doing as an individual, I feel bad for people who say, well, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not doing this for myself. It, like, I don't, want it. I don't want credit for it. I, I think it's all right. 
I think we will get credit for it. It'll be in a different form than that negative side we think of, but in the good form that drives us. That side says everything we do for the kingdom, pushing it forth, when judgment comes, I'm going to want that judgment because God sees. We think that God doesn't see what you're doing. No, I, I like that fact. Everything you do and everything that's going to hurt a little bit, friends, family, judging what you're doing, other people giving you a hard time, the only one that matters is that God sees it all. And one day there will be repayment. And I think that should be an exciting, exciting thing for us to read. So I think this whole passage isn't a somber message of, okay, this life's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It will be hard, but it's going to be good. And it's going to be beautiful. And I'm sure glad that we have this call to evangelism in this kind of way. Let's Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for all these different ideas we struggle with, how we are to go about, how we are to live, things we deal with. We wonder, why does this come our way? Why does this not work out our way? But through each bit of revelation we see, oh, this is what you're doing. Oh, this is how it works. And we see that it is good. See, we do, not, we do know that the gospel does not say that we will not suffer. But it says that we will suffer for a purpose. We will sacrifice. But every sacrifice we give does have a purpose. And that should lead us to excitement. So we pray for this church. Pray for everything they're doing. We pray that you would have your gracious hand of uh, biblical success on them that things would be moving in a direction of prosperity, but not in earthly prosperity, but in the way that is pleasing and good to you. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.